All right. Um, now the next use is to indicate an abiding authority carried over from the Old Testament. And this is a very simple one. And by the way, remember that some of these uses um, are uh, can, can overlap. And, and in fact, I would say that, that usually most of these uses include use number six, which is to indicate an abiding authority carried over from the Old Testament. When you carry over an Old Testament text, you're assuming it has authority. But sometimes that's especially the point. So if you look at Romans chapter three and verse four, by the way, this use is often introduced with as it is written, kathos gegrapta, as it is written. So Romans chapter three and verse four um, has this, may it never be, he said, uh, does the unbelief of Israel in verse three nullify the faithfulness of God? Because God promised Israel would be saved. So does their faithfulness nullify his faithful? Does their lack of faith nullify his faithfulness to the promise? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written. Quote, that you might be justified in your words and might prevail when you are judged. And um, that is from uh, Psalm 51, 4. And Paul is saying, just as it was true in Psalm 51, 4, it's still true of God. So the binding authority of this statement about God is, is still true. Um, by the way, how do we understand that statement? If some did not believe, that is most, did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And he asked the same thing, really. If, if you remember, he's, he addresses the same thing in Romans 9, where he says, uh, uh, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And, he's, and then here he explains why it's not failed. It's the answer back to our passage in, in chapter 3. This will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Why will it not nullify the faithfulness of God? Because of verse 6. In the second part, for they are not all Israel who are from Israel. So they are uh, basically it's saying that there is a physical Israel and there is a spiritual Israel. And um, so, as, as he says in verse 7, neither were all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So only one is chosen. It's a theology of the remnant. So God's promise here, just because the majority of Israel is not saved, uh, does not mean he was unfaithful to the promise because only a remnant are saved in Jesus and Paul's time. It doesn't nullify it because the promises all along were made to a remnant. And um, I'll often challenge my students uh, tell me anywhere in the Old Testament where a promise about Israel's exile, about sorry, about their restoration from exile, is uh, a promise that the majority would be saved. In my opinion, you can't find it. And uh, I've asked many, many classes of students that, that it's always a remnant. And um, I mean, you can just to give you one very small example here. Uh, Joel 2.28, which is quoted in Acts 2, by the way, 
we're only a remnant saved, remember. Joel 2.28, where it says, uh, after this, I'll pour forth my spirit uh, on all mankind. And he goes on and talks about this. And, and then in verses 30 to 31, he talks about blood, fire, sun, uh, moon into blood. Uh, this is now judgment. And then verse 32, it'll come about after that judgment that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And that word for escape and survivors elsewhere is used for the remnant. So only a remnant uh, uh, in, in, in this Joel prophecy about Israel's restoration will be saved. But I can't find anywhere. Um, you know, you do have the blessing on Abraham, uh, on his seed, but as New Test Old Testament theology or the Old Testament works it out, it's a remnant who will be saved. You remember the great Jeremiah 32 prophecy uh, of the new covenant. Remember, quoted, quoted in Hebrews, for example. And um, yeah, chapter 31. Chapter 31 and verse uh, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand. To bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband for them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I'll be their God, they'll be my people, and they shall not uh, teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Well, where it says they shall all know me, who is the all? Sort of asking, like, you know, the question when it says Christ died for all, who is the all? Well, in um, chapter uh, earlier in the chapter, um, in verse seven, speaking of this time of restoration, it says, Thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, shout among the chiefs of the nations about this restoration, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save thy people the remnant of Israel. Behold, I bring them from the north, gather them from the remote parts, etc., etc. So he just states it plainly there. So who is the all later in the chapter who uh, uh, will be part of the new covenant? It's the remnant of Israel. So that's why uh, this is the full background. And we could go throughout a number of passages where it talks about the restoration of Israel and designates a, a remnant. This is why God's faithfulness is... Um, uh, not to be questioned when the majority of Israel are not believing in Paul and Jesus' time because it's the remnant that's saved. You might think, oh, should have been the majority. God never promised the majority. It would be a remnant. Now, another passage for uh, this abiding authority is chapter 3 of Romans, also in verse 10. Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 10. And uh, we will return to this passage. But for now, notice in verse 9, it says, What then are we better than they? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. 
There's none righteous, not even one. And then he goes into this whole um, uh, list, uh, uh, this list of depravity and sinfulness that is taken from the Psalms uh, as well as Isaiah. Um, we will return to this. But the point is, as it is written, and what he's, what, what's now stated uh, by these Old Testament texts is what was true then in the Psalms is true now. And, uh, and that's the point. Uh, so often as it is written introduces this abiding authority. Notice if you remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 9, it was introduced with as it is written, so that would further maybe the question asked on Zoom would indicate, you know, this is an abiding authority. The, 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 the principle of this text is an abiding authority applicable in a number of situations. Yes to Paul, yes to elders, probably in other situations as well. Um, okay, then uh, and as we go, feel free to ask questions again on any of these uses. But the seventh use is to indicate a proverbial use of the Old Testament. Now, again, this is a little small, so you've got your handouts. Um, yes? Briefly, have you got anything um, to recommend to read on relating to what you're talking to about the Jeremiah as one remnant of that passage? Yes. Um, in my New Testament biblical theology, uh, I have two chapters on uh, the church is true Israel. In the second chapter toward the end, I have a significant section on how that Jeremiah prophecy relates to the church. Okay? It's in the library, but the library copy is currently there. Okay. Appropriately, I get Bill James propped uh, this thing up with my books. So. Um, all right. Anything else? Um, Okay, let's look at number uh, eight, sorry, number seven, to indicate a proverbial use of the Old Testament. Now, we could also call this the stock and trade use of the Old Testament. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you go into a hardware store, at least in the United States, um, you know you can get nails and screws. That's their stock and trade. They've always got it in stock. They got a lot of it. Okay. So uh, that's what they deal in. So the stock and trade use of the Old Testament is the repeated use of a word or phrase so much that it comes to have a common, almost proverbial meaning without deeply considering the original context. But if you do consider the original context, it does enrich the meaning even more. Let me repeat that. We can also call this the stock and trade use, the proverbial use. It's a repeated use of a word or phrase so much it comes to have a common meaning even without deeply considering the original context from which it came. So if your favorite football team, who was overwhelmingly uh, uh, predicted uh, to beat the team it's playing in the playoffs, and However, they lose. Um, you could say, well, that's the Waterloo of, uh, of the team. What happened at Waterloo? That was Napoleon's decisive defeat, but also probably unexpected. 
So we, we use what I'm sure you've heard Waterloo used a, a lot of times and in that way, or in, in the United States, often will when the United States starts getting bogged down in some foreign country, you know, whether it's you know uh, originally, of course, it was Vietnam, and then Afghanistan, other places, people will say, "Oh, this is our Vietnam," and um, so it, you know, people know what that means. Now, some people in later generations don't know what that means. But it's used so much, they still understand the meaning, though not the original context. Or we could talk about Watergate. We, we uh, Watergate, of course, was uh, what President Nixon, uh, why he had to leave office because uh, some of his um, uh, lower um, people in his administration that worked for him. Um, stole from some things from a democratic uh, agency. And eventually, uh, originally Nixon didn't know about it, but then he did know about it and he covered it up. And uh, the place where they stole things was called Watergate. The building was called, uh, I think it was called Watergate. <laughs> so now whenever there's government corruption, you know, maybe it's a corruption of, of, of some high ranking political officer having adultery with a woman. Let's say the woman's name is Shirley, it's Shirley Gate. Or if it's something about the stock market, it's uh, stock gate and so on and so on. And um, a lot of people who are younger don't understand that, but they've begun to understand that gate or this is Watergate, that yeah, that means something about government corruption. So um, you get these things used so much, you can probably think of other examples as well. What? The Contra? The, the Contra? Here in 1986. You mean with the... Uh, uh, Contragate. Oh, Contragate, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good example, Contragate, yeah. The US was selling... Um, yeah, to yeah, China yeah. exchange for uh -huh. money. Yes. In yes. You, you, you have a good uh, memory of that. That's good. Um, okay, anything else? Uh, so let's look at some examples. I think one of the best examples, and I've given this to you in the packet, is this. The use of Mysterion. Uh, uh, the, uh, the transliteration there is, I, I wouldn't use that transliteration. It's what you use in this particular. Uh, this is from a, the Englishman's Greek Concordance. So it's very appropriate to you, the Englishman's Greek Concordance. Uh, Everybody have that? This is the word in Greek that is translated as mystery. It's mysterium. Look at how many times it's used. This is amazing. And uh, I would say that if you can decide, well, what what does it what does it mean? Well, if you look to the next page. This use of mystery or mysterion in a redemptive historical sense occurs only in Daniel chapter two. And uh, it does occur in the Apocrypha, but only as a secret or a confidence. It's never about something in redemptive history. So the only place where mystery is used with regard to something related to redemptive history is Daniel chapter two. 
you know, you'll notice, don't get confused here. You can see here we've got uh, Daniel 2.18, Daniel all the way down, down to um, 47. And we start over at Daniel 2.18 again. You see that all the way down to verse 47. And actually also chapter 4 and verse 6. Don't get confused about that. In, in Daniel, there are two Greek Old Testaments, okay? One is called Theodosian. That's why you have TH there. And the other is called the Old Greek. Here, it used to be designated by LXX. Now it's OG, Old Greek. And so uh, this concordance has two because um, uh, you, you've got two Greek Old Testaments. That's just to explain that. But what does this, I, this comes from Daniel. And what did it mean in Daniel? Remember, we already talked about the statue that was crushed. And um, if you remember, the king had a dream where he saw that statue in these sections, but he did not know the meaning. And so he asked the soothsayers to uh, give him the meaning. They couldn't. He was about to kill them. Uh, Daniel prayed that God would give him the mystery. He did. And he went to the king and said, okay. God of heaven has revealed to you, he's revealed the mystery to you of what must come to pass in the latter days. And so uh, the rebel, what the king saw is understood to be a mystery by Daniel, which is revealed to Daniel and Daniel <coughs> reveals it to the king. What is the essence of that mystery? Well, we've already kind of talked about it. That is uh, at the end of the age, uh, God will defeat the kingdoms of the earth and uh, set up a new kingdom that will last forever. Um, now, to Nebuchadnezzar, that was probably uh, a, a surprising revelation. Um, he probably thought his own kingdom would, would last forever, but... Uh, Never would he think that uh, some sort of defeat by the Hebrew God of heaven would uh, uh, do away with the kingdoms of the world. And we'll see that that surprising element is further expressed in Daniel 4, where again, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream about himself being destroyed, and he's very surprised by it. So that the surprising element, and at the end, in chapter 4, verse 7, it's called a mystery. And Daniel reveals that as well. So there's a surprising element when the mystery is revealed. In the case of Daniel 2, it's something surprising about eschatology, the eschatological defeat of the kingdoms of evil. And probably surprising, maybe, it's hard to say, but surprising that the defeat of one kingdom would entail the defeat of all the kingdoms that had preceded in the sense of corporate representation, corporate solidarity that we have talked about. Um, so uh, probably when we have mystery then in the New Testament, we're talking about two things. Number one, it's about eschatology. Number two, it is unexpected. And let me just stop there for a moment. It's used a lot here. Now, if you've got a concordance to Qumran, which you can find, I don't know if we have it here, but uh, uh, in Qumran, the Hebrew word, the Aramaic word for mystery is Raz, R-A-Z, Raz. And uh, it's used all over Qumran. 
and an eschatological context. And sometimes it's things that are surprising. So here, we've got a stock and trade use of mystery here, but it's pretty narrow. It's about something unexpected that's eschatological. Well, what's unexpected that's eschatological? Let's look at some of these. If you notice uh, that I, I have put dots by a lot of these passages. In fact, most of them have dots, if you see that. Okay, what does the dot mean? It means that either uh, uh, in the middle uh, of a passage where a mysterion occurs or right before it or right after it is either an Old Testament quotation or an illusion. So that's probably not accidental because in one way or another, uh, those passages are, are about uh, Old Testament prophecies. So that gets us into eschatology when you start talking about fulfillment. And so what's going on with mystery here in light of Daniel? Well, you've got eschatological fulfillment going on uh, wherever these texts occur. The revelation is about some kind of eschatological fulfillment. And it's usually unexpected. Let me give you one example. You'll remember when uh, Jesus talks about his parables. And uh, he tells the disciples, say, why do you speak in parables? And so he explains to them why he speaks in parables uh, in Matthew chapter 13. And then he starts, and, and, and remember, he says, these are parables about the kingdom. From verse 11, he answers when they ask about why do you speak in parables? To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. By the way, kingdom of heaven uh, is probably from Daniel as well. So you get mysteries, kingdom of heaven. Again, the allusion to Daniel uh, uh, crops up even uh, more explicitly here. Uh, it's been, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To them, it's not been granted. Well, uh, then he goes on and explains uh, parables. He gives us parables. What are they? One parable is about um, uh, a field in which there's wheat and uh, the tares of the field grow up and uh, they're to be left. They're not to be pulled out. The point is the wicked in the midst of believers, there's not to be a separation. But in the Old Testament, if you're looking from the Old Testament vantage point to the new, at the time of the defeat of the evil world kingdoms, there was a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. And there will be the judgment of the righteous and reward of the righteous. No. Eschatology has begun. The latter days have begun with the coming of Jesus here. But he's saying in his parables, it's already and not yet. In the already phase, which is unexpected. See, already and not yet itself is unexpected. Because you don't have, in the Old Testament mainly, you have wham, bang, wham, bang <laughs> definitive, climactic, uh, uh, kingdom and defeat of the enemy. The New Testament, you begin to get already and not yet. Now, is that something brand new? What? Remember, I don't think anything is brand new. So Psalm 110, does, there, there are very few passages that give us a hint of already and not yet. And Psalm 110 is one of them. And Psalm 110 uh, says this, the Lord says to my Lord, verse 1, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this may give us some indication of, of a kind of continual uh, battle uh, where he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. By the way, that phrase, sit at my right hand, is the most used allusion from the Old Testament in the New. Uh, and it's usually not quoted, it's alluded to. And so Jesus is at the right hand in this age, awaiting the final consummation. Right now, the spiritual powers have been defeated and are being defeated, and then consummately, uh, they will be defeated along with earthly world powers at the end of the age. So, but as we go back to Matthew 13, uh, the revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom, one, one of the revelations about this eschatological kingdom, by the way, kingdom is eschatological. Remember, it's from Daniel, kingdom, um, and the kingdom of heaven and, and mystery in relation to it. So that's eschatological. Remember, Daniel 2.28 says, Oh God, uh, oh, oh King, God has revealed the mystery of what must come to pass in the latter days. So it's explicitly about the latter days. And so here uh, we have this unexpected latter day uh, uh, situation. The kingdom has come, but we're not separating the evil from the righteous. And not yet are we rewarding the righteous and punishing the evil. That's unexpected. He presents another parable in 1331 uh, of Matthew. He, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And then eventually it grows into a big tree. So there again, we have a slow growth of the kingdom. And whereas in the Old Testament, it looked like wham, bang, decisive, sudden. No, that's unexpected, but still eschatological. The kingdom is here, eschatological kingdom, it's going to be slow growth. Or, he says, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Well, leaven seems to grow invisibly. And so um, the kingdom, yes, grows slowly and apparently invisibly. You can't see it with eyes. I call myself uh, an optimistic uh, or an ironic post-millennialist because post-millennialists typically want to see progression that's visible. Uh, I'm an amillennialist, and yet there's progression. You just can't see it till the end of the age. So I'm, I'm a kind of uh, ironic post-millennialist, if you will. Because um, I do see progression, but it doesn't have to be physical. There may be some physical progression, and thank the Lord for it. But I don't think that's going to be the dominant trait in, in this age. It does happen. And I think right now we're in a period of material blessing and haven't been for some time, but uh, in other parts of the world, not. Um, so, um, now as you look at these then, uh, all of these have Old Testament allusions or quotations that have the dots. Why? Because they're saying something about fulfillment. Uh, that's eschatological and yet unexpected, and that's a, that, that's sort of the um, that's sort of the stock and trade use of it, both in Qumran, quite a bit, and in the New Testament. The origin of it is Daniel, but even if you don't think of Daniel, 
Uh, you can see by the uses of these that these are unexpected eschatological fulfillments. But then when you do look at Daniel as the root of it, it enriches it all the more. Um, any questions? We're going to do one more example of the stock and trade use because it's a, it, it's kind of an unusual use. You don't find many books on Old and the New uh, commentaries talking about it. Um, any other questions on stock and trade use? Uh, there, there is a, a good example of stock and trade in the Old Testament itself. Uh, you might remember the phrase, it's repeated uh, all over the Old Testament, and it's called um, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon. Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon. And it's found throughout the Old Testament. And uh, uh, I could list off a number of passages for you. You could, you could find it in the concordance just looking up Moab and wherever it says Edom and sons of Ammon by it, you'll see where that threefold phrase occurs. You don't even need an electronic concordance for that. You know, 2 Samuel 8, 12, 1 Chronicles 18, 11, 2 Kings 24, 2, Psalms 68 through 9. You can go on and on. Um, in, in most of those passages, on through passages in Jeremiah, it's referring to them pretty literally. These are literal foes, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Adam. It's talking about God's judgment of them. But around the second century, they uh, BC, they disappear. And yet it, it keeps being used. Um, so that uh, even though Isaiah certainly was written before the second century, Isaiah gives an eschatological prophecy in um, chapter 11, verse 14. And uh, in that prophecy, it says in verse 14, speaking of the restoration of Israel, they'll swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. This is chapter 11, verse 14. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. Uh, men will walk over dry shod. We're talking about a second exodus now. There'll be a highway from Assyria. The remnant of his people will be left. Wait, there's another remnant text there. The remnant of his people will be left, just as there was for Israel when that day they came up out of the land of Egypt. So um, uh, probably there, the, when this is finally fulfilled, ultimately in the time of Jesus, Moab and the sons of Ammon are gone. And so that threefold phrase, as it's used after around the second century BC, it becomes figurative. It becomes stock and trade for the enemy of God's people, not the literal enemy anymore. And uh, Daniel eleven fourteen also mentions the same thing and mentions these people existing in the latter days, which is likely referring just to the enemy of God's people, not the literal um, uh, Edom, Moab, and the sons of, of, of Ammon. And then in, it, this is used in the Apocrypha, 1 Maccabees 5, 3 to 6. It's used in Jubilees 37, 6 to 9. And Midrash Rabbah 14.1. These are all after uh, the early part of the uh, second century, uh, so that clearly there is no longer a literal Moab, Edom, and um, 
sons of Ammon. It's figurative for the people of God. So, so these phrases are repeated and repeated in Qumran, which is first century AD. It, 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 it began probably um, 100 years before Christ, but it continued on to 70 AD. Um, but it's repeated there, and it's and, 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 and it refers to the Romans and all those who allied themselves with the Romans. So this is a, a, a kind of stock and trade use of uh, the enemy of God. Um, that's a good place to stop. Um, when we come back, we will look at the uh, number eight to indicate a rhetorical use of the Old Testament. Now, we've already talked about rhetorical use. Um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm going to repeat some things about it, but then I'm going to introduce something new about the rhetorical use. So if you have any questions about the stock and trade use, we can, we can think about it. We can come back and talk about that at the beginning of the next class. Oh, we're over today, aren't we? Is that it? So um, you can think about that uh, for uh, Thursday. Please be sure. Bring your handouts back if you're coming. If you don't come with the handouts, you won't be able to follow as well because there's a lot more that we're going to deal with on the handouts.